I'm Kato Kalen and you're listening to The Society Show. So don't go. Don't go. Listen to the show. Society Show. Oh my God, it's all my mom's fault. Shut up. Shut up. Stop. Move forward. Do you believe in society's laws? Do you believe in society's laws? Putting fake blue check mark on tweets to make it seem like they were official and lying. All right, broadcasting live from the New Society Theater. Uh, this is Christian Patterson. You're listening to The Society Show. Today I am joined by Pat Breen, uh, Pathew, uh, like Matthew, but Pat, on social media. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Pressure Cooker. Thank you, Christian. Excited to be here. I guess, uh, is there uh, anything you want to talk about before we, I mean, this is a pretty packed show, but anything you want to talk about at the start of the episode? Honestly, not really. Um, I, yeah, I have nothing to plug. I'm just like a, a normie with a computer guy job, but I like to follow uh, news and Twitter and whatnot. Awesome. So I'm excited to hop on in. Hey, yes. Yeah, so welcome to the show. In that case, uh, I can just start with this quiz that I have prepared for you. And to give some context for the quiz ahead of time, last episode, um, me and my guests talked a little bit about uh, Pokemon cards, how they've become really collectible. And because of that, I was, you know, thinking about Pokemon, and uh, then I, I came up with the idea of I will name either a Pokemon or a startup company, and you have to guess which it is. And um, Nice. So there will be eight questions, very straightforward. I'll just name something, and you guess if it's a Pokemon or a startup company. Sounds good. All right, perfect. So number one. But wait, by the way, before I ask these, how familiar are you with either Pokemon or startup companies? <laughs> I So I, I know the original, like, 151, um, Everything beyond that is, like, a complete mystery to me. I fell off at that point. Um, startups, I, I don't know. I follow the space somewhat, but um, honestly, it could go either way. So Okay, so... I, uh, I'm ready. Okay, yeah, I think most of these Pokemon are from either Generation 5 or 6, kind of that time frame, so... Uh... Oh, God, okay, yeah, I know zero of those. <laughs> The last one I played was, like, gold. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, uh, question one. Swirlix. S-W-I-R-L-I-X. Oh, man. So, I mean, the... The Lix part makes it sound like... I, I do think a Pokemon from that. But I could also see this as some kind of, like, uh, like an automatic toilet flusher startup. <laughs> yes. Um... I'm going to say Pokemon, though. That is correct. It is a fairy-type cotton candy Pokemon. Wow. The next one, number two, Neuro, and it's spelled N-U-R-O. 
Is that a Pokemon or a startup company? Oh man. I think in startup company. Although I can definitely picture the Pokemon that it would be, I think. That is correct. It's a robotics and artificial intelligence company. Wow. Horrifying. <laughs> so two for two. Number three, Rappy, spelled R-A-P-P-I. Oh, man, that sounds like, I think that's a Pokemon. Sounds like a little guy. That is incorrect. It is actually one of the fastest growing apps in Latin America. It's kind of like a takeout and delivery type app. Oh, wow. Okay, I can see it's like rapid, rapid delivery. <laughs> yeah, although I don't know Spanish enough to uh, know any sort of, <laughs> like, any cognates or something like that. Oh, yeah, no, same. Pretty <laughs> rusty. All right, so two for three. Number four, Solosis. S-O-L-O-S-I-S. Oh, man. I, I want to say that is, it sounds like maybe like a solar-related startup, but the, the name is completely foreign to me. That or like a hypnotizing, like a psychic-type Pokemon, but I'm going to go with startup. That is incorrect. It is a psychic-type Pokemon. Oh my god, are you serious? Wow. <laughs> yes. Alright. Okay, so that is, that makes it, what, three for five? Yeah. Wait, no, that was four questions. Two out of four, yes. I'm sorry, I'm really bad. If you've listened to the show before, you know I'm like terrible at keeping score for this, so I'm trying to keep track as I go. No, no, no worries. <laughs> so number five Amara spelled A-M-A-U-R-A hmm. um, Amara I I'm thinking Pokemon I'll say Pokemon for this one that is correct. It is a rock ice type Pokemon. Wow. All right. So you are three for five. Nice. Solid D minus. I'm by winning. Number six. Sendoso. S E N D O S O. Sendoso. All right. I'm like fighting my impulse to Google this. Um, I'm going to say that's a startup. No clue what it could possibly do. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. It is a startup, although I'm not exactly sure what they make. It, I looked at their website. It seems like some type of business software, but, you know, a lot of tech companies deal in very, like, it's stuff that doesn't make sense to regular people. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like, B2B space. Nice, all right. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, one of those, like, software programs, I don't know. So that puts you at four out of six, 
two more. Number seven, Hoopa, H-O-O-P-A. Okay, so at first I I was like, is that like a big data platform? But that's Hadoop, I think. Uh, I'm going to say Pokemon. That is correct. It is a mythical Pokemon. Nice. Which I, I apparently mythical is like a step a different it's like legendary but different. <laughs> oh shoot. They go even higher, man. Yeah. I'm out of the loop. Yeah, they have here. like different categories of legendary now. Man. Alright, so you're at five out of seven. That's pretty good. The last question. Dipsy spelled D I P S E A. Dipsy. I I was going to say Pokemon, but the spelling of it, I think it's, I want to say Startup, ending with the, the S-E-A. So, I'm going, I'm saying Startup. That is correct, and it is actually an app that, from what I could tell, it basically has erotica audio stories for women. Um, so, they're kind of like... I guess short ebooks, but um, I'm not really sure. But yeah, it's like an erotica platform. Oh, you know, I, I think I heard an ad for that on a on another podcast, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Backdoor cheat there, then. <laughs> yes. Oh, nice. So yeah, that means you got six out of eight, and uh, I gotta be honest, that's pretty. I'd say that's better than average, probably. Winner. Hell yeah. I'll take that, uh, that's a solid C. Yeah, so I also wanted to talk about something, you know, back in the day on this podcast, we, uh, I did a segment a lot about the Libyan Civil War, like, I honestly think I could have reported more on the Libyan Civil War than, like, CNN did in total, and, uh, so I was very pleased when I got an email on the Society Show podcast, um, I got an email from someone claiming to be Colonel Gaddafi's daughter, Aisha Gaddafi, um, yeah, so do you have any thoughts on that? I'm going to read the email exchange I had, but do you have any preliminary thoughts on this? I mean, I think it's uh, really exciting. I think it's, it's going to be great for uh, the visibility of the show. Um, if she's a regular listener, uh, that's going to be huge for you. Yeah, and I mean, I will be but. completely transparent and say that this is a similar to like a Nigerian prince scam, but uh, for whatever yeah. reason, they chose to pretend to be Gaddafi's daughter. Yeah, that seems like a really high stakes and like kind of easily verified like uh, person to pretend to be, but that's, that's pretty hilarious. Though. <laughs> so I... Yeah, excited to see what she's got to say. Yeah, so let's get into it. The first email she wrote, and I will say I got a ton of spam emails that have generally the same message, like dozens of them. Um, Dear friend, my name is Aisha Gaddafi, a single mother and a widow with three children. I am the only biological daughter of late Libyan president, parentheses, late Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. 
I have investment funds worth $27,500,000 United States dollars, and I need a trusted investment manager because of my current refugee status. I am willing to negotiate investment, blah, blah, blah. Best regards, Mrs. Aisha Gaddafi. So I replied back. Um, I said... <laughs> Um, so one thing I'm trying to do with this show is create a cast of, uh, characters who, um, are basically like fake publicists or fake financial analysts to trick high profile people onto the show. Um, before I get into the email, do you think that trick will work? I'm kind of giving away the game, but... I mean, I hope it does in this case, for sure. <laughs> yes. And I mean, it's famously been used by uh, a recent president of the United States. So, I mean, uh, it's solid tactic, I'd say. When needed, I wear masks. Okay, let me ask. I don't, have to, I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from it. He shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, has Trump done something like that? Like make up fake people <laughs> to pretend to be? Oh, yeah. He um, he had this like fake publicist. I think the name was like John Barron. And then he, this was like before he had his son named Barron. <laughs> um, so he ostensibly named his son after his like fake persona that he would talk to like PR agent as. <laughs> That's hilarious. I had no idea about that. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote back. I said, Hello, Madam Gaddafi. This is Christian Patterson. My head publicist forward forwarded me your email immediately. As I'm sure you know, the Society Show has extensively covered Libyan politics in the past. I am honored to receive an email from the brotherly leader, Colonel Gaddafi's daughter. The Society Show would love to handle your investments. Society Show Enterprises is looking to diversify our portfolio. I like that part. <laughs> and we have started a new subsidiary company called the Society Fund. Let me know if you want me to forward your email to our lead financial expert. And then they replied basically with this really long stuff, like asking for my social security number and like telling me about a bank in Burkina Faso to send the money to. It was basically automated. They did not care about my message. No, oh, that's disappointing. It's a, it's a bummer when uh, it's like the, the scam just falls apart on the first reply. You're like, oh, I was uh, hoping we get like a banter going. Yeah, I will say I did keep going. So they um, sent me this long thing, and I basically said, so I replied, Hi, Aisha. That was a lot of info for me. I will definitely <laughs> forward this to my chief financial analyst. And then I said, in the meantime, can I ask you a, four qu a few questions for the Society Show podcast? First, what was your dad like? Second, in your opinion, why did the U.S. aid the rebels in assassinating your dad? And third, now that the Libyan civil war is tentatively over, how do you feel about the future of Libya? And when I sent that, um, I think maybe it's on the second reply it gets forwarded to an actual person because I did have someone attempt to answer these questions. Oh my god, what uh, what they say? 
<laughs> well, I also um, want to really emphasize that whoever's running this scam is uh, presumably from Burkina Faso. Like, the emails they keep sending to me always want me to send money to a bank there. So, um, I guess that adds some context. Like, this is someone who lives near Libya, kind of, like a country away, but, like, maybe not, like, super geopolitically associated with Libya. So, I guess keep that in mind when you read their answers. Um... Uh, she wrote back, quote, Thank you for your message with some questions as well. To answer your question, I will like you to know that my dad is the best thing that has ever happened to the continent of Africa and Libya at large. Even at this present time, there is no doubt that my country are regretting losing my father and the rest is history. And then they said uh, to question two, the United States government thought that my dad was funding a terror operation against the United States, which was not realistic, such as the 1986 Berlin discotheque bombing to which the United States retaliated by bombing Libya. So they were already targeting my father before incidents that gave them the chance of aiding the rebels in assassinating my dad. That answer is really interesting to me because I only know about the 1986 Berlin discotheque bombing because of the documentary Hypernormalization. Have you ever seen that? I yeah, same. That like prior to um I like the Libyan Civil War, really all I knew about the country was um in like Back to the Future, wasn't that where he was getting the plutonium from? I think so. Yeah. And then um but yeah, other than that, like historically, yeah, hypernormalization was really the first I'd heard of like our extensive misadventures, uh, blaming things on Gaddafi. Yeah, and I think the really interesting thing about that is like, for one, most Americans probably don't know about or even remember the 1986 Berlin discotheque bombing. They definitely don't generally remember that it was wrongfully blamed on Gaddafi. Um, I don't think they remember anything about that. I still remember in my mind how things used to be. And, uh, you know, I feel very bad. And then um, I'll just wrap up with the third answer to my third question. Uh, she wrote, I feel sad over the future of Libya because... May looking at the happening in Libya today shows that there is no better Libya than when my dad was the president. And, I mean, generally speaking, like, that is true. But he was president for, like, 50 years when the country was developing. So it's, like, I mean, it's disregarding history to say that, but... Right. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I, on an objective level, I guess... Definitely better than um, than what's going on there today. Yeah, and I did. I do have a story from Libya um, that I wanted to talk about and kind of transition into talking a little bit about the Arab Spring because it has been about ten years now since the Arab Spring. But uh, the Libyan civil war ended last year in this kind of truce. Um, right now, it's ostensibly two like 
two countries coexisting as one like there's kind of um different power structures in the east and west of the country editor's note this was recorded on march 13th on march 15th the interim government for all of libya was put in place the election will take place at the end of this year. But uh, some good news about it is that more than 100 migrants who were basically taken as slaves or some type of... They were being trafficked in one way or another. They were freed. And um, human trafficking has been a huge problem basically ever since Gaddafi uh, was assassinated because it created such a power vacuum. The people who were going after Gaddafi were uh, kind of really like far-right Islamists a lot of the time. Um, and then once he died, there was just no one really enforcing any type of trafficking laws, I guess. So do you have any thoughts on these uh, migrants being freed from their traffickers? I, yeah, it's definitely good whenever that happens. Um, it's like, I just, anytime anyone has described Libya post Gaddafi, it's almost always as a, like an open air slave market, essentially. Um, so I, I honestly, I didn't even realize that the, the conflict had sort of drawn to a close even. Um, so that's definitely that much is good. Yeah, and it, it's it was a really interesting civil war because basically the the guy in the east, Haftar, he was is very much in line with the LCC, like the leader of Egypt, where they're kind of like military um, autocrats who are very much in uh, aligned with people or countries like Saudi Arabia, um, like that power block in the Middle East, and then. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the west side, on the other hand, um, they, uh, it's pretty interesting. There's actually a lot of Turkish Libyans um, who colonized the area way back, like in the Ottoman Empire era, and still live there. So that's a big part of the reason why uh, Turkey supported the west half of the country in this conflict. There is sort of a almost like ethnic base motivation to it oh interesting i don't want to get too like in depth into middle eastern politics i guess maybe you do want to but uh erdogan he differs from like the traditional model of the turkish state is unlike the ottoman empire we're gonna worry about domestic turkish issues we're not gonna worry as much about like ethnic turks or expanding turkey um but erdogan is very much more in this sort of like ottoman mindset where he sees turkey as like the ethnic turkic people and that's a big reason why he's so oppressive to the kurds too oh interesting so will he um he Will he reestablish the empire? That's right, buddy. You show that turd who's boss. That's a good question. I mean, I don't think in any meaningful <laughs> way there's too much, like, um, too many, like, power centers uh, surrounding Turkey that I don't think would really let that happen. Like, you know, like, the Emiratis and Saudis definitely wouldn't. Um and the EU would have something to say about invading Greece For or sure. something. <laughs> but in a way, like, yeah, that is what Turkey's moving towards is <laughs> they want to bring back the empire. 
Yeah, and so I guess uh, I read a couple stories this week about, you know, there was, there's been a lot of protests in Tunisia, rallies and stuff. There's been a lot of protests in Algeria. And so, you know, a lot of protesting going on in North Africa, Arab Spring countries. And I guess before we get into that, I just want to say, like, you know, Tunisia was held up as the first example of the Arab Spring and the most successful. It's the only country where a government was successfully overthrown and replaced, excluding Egypt, where they, like, successfully overthrew the government, which was then cooed, like, a, a year later. But every uh, everywhere else, there was, like, big enough concessions that um, the protests were deemed successful. But Tunisia was held up as, like, the the real success and um they they've still been protesting against an oppressive government so what do you think about all of that worst day of my life what do you think i it's interesting because i mean i remember when the arab spring first started i mean especially kind of in the more like the, the north africa like the, like the maghreb states um at the time it was kind of this like victory of um like organizing on social media and like all these youth movements, but it has, um, yeah, I think we've seen that there hasn't been a lot of kind of long-term success there. And um, yeah, even as Tunisia is kind of the original, one of the first kind of more victorious states of that uh, has not ultimately fared well, I guess. Um, And if that's like one of the better outcomes I think that just shows just how poorly it's gone in a lot of those other states. Yeah, I also think there was kind of a history of, like, once the Arab Spring started happening and it really started happening in Tunisia, a lot of other countries, especially the U.S., um, took a really opportunistic stance, uh, seeing as it a way to kind of help replace the governments they don't like. Um, and a lot of it didn't really stick. Like I, I kind of, you know, in Egypt, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that the U S, uh, either got Jerome Morsi elected, um, the, the candidate after the Arab spring or the, the U S contributed to the coup to overthrow them, throw him. Maybe the U S was involved in both. Like that is a very prominent theory in Egypt. Yeah, I would say like entirely possible, but um, yeah, it's it's been interesting to see how in the years since then it hasn't it's turned out to not be as kind of organic I think as it was presented at the time. Um, these kind of what we're now seeing as these like Obama administration uh, regime change efforts. Yeah, uh, just using a lot more like soft power instead of um, directly sending in troops. Yeah, they it, they're very reminiscent of what they remember like color revolutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, even like the the one in Iran um, used that imagery like very heavily. Like I remember friends of mine like tinting their Facebook avatars green at the time. Oh, um, <laughs> was that? Oh, yeah, the the green movement. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of these probably would be characterized as color revolutions. Um, and I guess for the listener, I guess um, 
A color revolution, the way I characterize it, is it's not exactly a revolution the way they're typically understood. It's more like a popular democratic movement a lot it was originally used about anti-soviet um uprisings when the soviet union was collapsing um they're basically yeah i wouldn't really call them revolutions i guess just kind of like democratic movements that change the government yeah it's kind of like mass demonstrations and uprisings that were maybe sort of astroturfed. Yeah, exactly. Like, some of them I'm, like, sure are totally, like, cool and I'm happy for them and all that, but a lot of them are uh, seemingly, like, helped by outside interest groups a lot of the time, typically, you know, countries like the U.S. Right, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and so, I mean, I guess... Looking back on the Arab Spring now, it's kind of hard to even really, like, take anything away from it. Like, it was a pretty optimistic time, but now it's kind of like, not only did it not amount to that much, but now there's a sense of, like, well, where could it go from here? Yeah, it's bleak. (laughs) And yeah, I'd say possibly demonstrably worse than uh, a lot of those countries. Yeah, I mean, the perfect example is Syria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been doing a segment the last few weeks where I've been asking people where they are mentally. Because, I mean, everyone's getting sick of COVID. It's been a year. In fact, so I'll say we're recording this on March 13th. It's coming out in a few days. But uh, March 13th was actually my sister's wedding day. I came into town for it. And, um, like, that day, her wedding is when COVID started getting treated really seriously. Um, I was still in town for a few days after because that was when I was living in Philly and I came back to Seattle for my sister's wedding. And that was when everything was shut down. Like, it felt weird being out because no one was at that point. Um, So now that it's been a year, I guess, uh, where do you want to be in the world? Like, what do you want to be doing instead of COVID stuff? Oh, man. It's so hard to even imagine a world outside of that. I yeah, I'd say about a year ago as well. My uh, my partner and I were kind of just starting the process of moving uh, just across town. But yeah, I remember just being out and being. Uh, the last time we went to a restaurant, we um just ordered some burritos and ate in. Even at the time, I remember thinking, I I don't know if we should be like eating in a restaurant. We maybe should have gotten this to go. Um. But yeah, then just our hands is getting so uh, dried out from overloading on hand sanitizer all the time. <laughs> yes. But oh God, going forward, I mean, I, I definitely uh, uh, we both want to see our, our families. Um, so we both uh, grew up in Southern California, so I think to be able to just travel back down there would be really nice at some point soon. Um, and even beyond that, I don't even know if I have an imagination of where I would like to go. And I mean, fortunately, I guess living in kind of the uh, Pacific Northwest area, there's at least a lot of like nature we can get away to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, international travel. I don't know. Canada, start small. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess that's where I'm at. Like the last time, couple times I did this segment, the first time I was like, I want to be at a resort in the Maldives. And then I was like, I want to be in Mexico. And uh, it's starting to get nice out. And so like really all I want to do is like, you know, go to a coffee shop and, you know, just be able to like hang out uh, inside for a little bit and like maybe use my laptop and drink the coffee and then just like do stuff like that without using a mask that's really just like what i want tell me all the things you wanna do yeah exactly i mean even the restaurants that have opened up and there's a few coffee shops around town um it's like you can't you have to have your mask on the whole time you're inside for a lot of them which it makes sense, but then does kind of defeat the purpose of going to a shop. It's like I basically, I just need to order and then just vacate immediately. And then the places that do let you eat, it, it's like, it seems absurd to be, to take your mask off to eat and then put it back up when you're done. It's like, why, what were you even doing in the first place? Just get it to go. Yeah, I mentioned this on my last episode, but I went down to Portland for a little bit and, uh, their their um, dining is a little less restricted than it is up here, and um, we went to a restaurant, and it just like wasn't very fun at all. Like you have to wait a long time, and the whole mask thing, like it just it's not the same at all. Yeah, yeah, it seems not not the most fun. That I'd like to go to movies too. I'm excited for that to. Is, uh, are they doing, like, Emerald City Comic Con this year? I doubt it, but it's possible. Do they, they normally do that in the summer, right? I, I honestly forget what, uh, what season it is. But, I, if they do do it, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it looks like they do it at the end of August, so, um, who knows? It, it's possible. Well, we can hope. Oh, interesting. Yeah, otherwise... So it, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I looked it up. It looks like um, this year they're doing it in December, so they probably pushed it back from when they normally do in hopes that every the COVID will be completely done by then. Nice. Yeah, yeah hopefully that should be enough time to get uh, like the vaccines out and everything. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's it's at a place now where it feels like COVID's ending, but... If you think that, you might be thinking too soon, and um, but it is definitely getting there. My bum is on the cheese. Bum is on the cheese. If I get lucky, I'll get a disease. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm jealous because my parents both got the vaccine like a month or so ago. Um, they're yeah, they're in California. My dad actually works at a hospital, um, so they're able to get in early, but. Yeah, it's been, it seems like kind of a somewhat slower rollout up here. I know in California, a lot of other states have the program where you, um, you like get notified if like a local pharmacy has extra doses or something that are going to expire. And I haven't seen anything like that up here. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I recently put my name on the list to wait and, uh, I'm definitely not one of the people who qualify yet, but, uh, We'll see. Maybe in like five months they'll call me. Yeah, exactly. Mm. 
I guess I, there was one other thing I wanted to say, or just that I was thinking about with Arab Spring was, um, I think just the way that it's presented in, I mean, as I hate using the term like the media, but or the way we talk about the Arab Spring protests in like Western mainstream media, um, still seems to kind of really ignore like a lot of um, uh, kind of the reality of the situation. Even in prepping for this, I um, I remember there was like this Vox article from like, I want to say early 2016. That was um, like the title was like the unsexy truth of why the Arab Spring failed or uh, something to that effect. And I mean, it ultimately just kind of chalked it up to like, well, you know, like Egypt uh, still bad there because they they just like didn't have the, in the strong institutions. Um the institutions had just kind of been like choked out for decades in favor of like the executive and the military and um, kind of just really ignoring how much of a factor kind of like Western influence played in a lot of that as well. And it's like, yeah, Egypt may not have had um, maybe like the machinery in place to, uh, to take new leadership but at the same time, if there wasn't even really kind of an organic hunger for that in the first place, like, I don't, I don't know what we were expecting. Um, and I mean, even kind of Syria as well, as that started to deteriorate, um, when the, I guess the, the messaging was that ISIS um, just kind of like came out of nowhere and like, holy crap, what's going on? When... Um, you know, we we may have been kind of trying to subtly turn up the heat on a on a sod in different ways that uh, haven't really been. They don't get talked about as much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Syrian. I made the uh, I made in Syria, and I have to live in Syria and die in Syria. But yeah, he uh, he's still there. He's still he's got that banger song. I still. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna be in a sod stand. But have you heard that theme song that he has? <laughs> well, um, I don't know if I know the right. I've heard some like songs for him. Is it actually by him? It's not by him. Although that that would be hilarious. But it's just like um <laughs> like a, a pro Assad theme song. Yeah, um, I, just, I was seeing on like a lot of Instagram memes like I don't know a year and a half ago. <laughs> I think I've heard it. Also, there's a there was a new video going around yesterday, made by the uh, the Houthis in Yemen, um, uh, basically like showing all their rockets and planes, and they're like singing a song. <laughs> it looks very like professionally produced too. I guess my thought, if I have any more thoughts on the Arab Spring, it's just kind of like, yeah, a lot of it, it seems like a grouping of a lot of different things that actually were pretty dissimilar. They were just kind of happening at the same time. Like, I feel like characterizing the protests in Tunisia as having any of the same character as, like, the civil war in Syria and the, like, 
I guess, like, armed rebellions in Iraq or whatever, like, the enabling of ISIS in Iraq, that type of stuff. I don't really think that's of the same character at all as just, like, mass uprisings. Yeah, absolutely. It's just kind of the way it's been... I, that's the, the issue, I guess, is with our, like, narrative of it is how it just kind of gets flattened into this Hollywood idea of um, all these countries rebelling against their their bad guy dictators when it's it, yeah it was absolutely just a bunch of kind of disparate things happening around the same time absolutely and yeah i guess that's the extent of my thoughts on it that yeah same it was um yeah it was just weird because i was like i was doing my poli sci undergrad at the time um and it's funny because like a political science has kind of this like stereotype as being a very um it's like you'll come out of the program as like a real hippy dippy guy. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. But a lot of the like the professors and the the curricula were it was very kind of like neoliberal establishment, which looking back makes sense, I suppose. But at the time, I just remember professors saying things like um, when in the war on terror, like. Uh, it's difficult to even make distinctions about who is or isn't a civilian um, and just kind of taking drone strikes as like a unassumed thing that is happening. And the debate is like, well, do we want the CIA doing the drone strikes or the Pentagon? And I'm like, I've, how am I supposed <laughs> to write this paper? Because I, <laughs> I feel like we should just not really be doing them in the first place. At least not the volume that we are. I kind of had a similar thing in one of my classes. Like, I was—I never took any political science class, but I took a class on the, um, po- the like philosophy of genocide. Like, I was a philosophy major, and uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I was a little weirded out because he—the professor was Serbian. He was like really proud to be Serbian, and he'd occasionally say things that made me wonder if he was, like, denying the Bosnian genocide. Like, he was very, like, weirdly dismissive of it. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, he was, like, super into being Serbian. That's another weird, uh, like, Instagram bubble that I feel like ends up in my algorithm sometimes. It's got all these weird, like, pro-Serbian memes. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, and the interesting thing about, like, the Serbian far right is they're, like, really into um, the, like, Serbian royalty, and then there was, like, someone who's in the Serbian royalty who's in, like, a reality show or something like that in the U.S. Oh, no way. Yeah, let let me find who it is. I gotta look into this. Oh, so the show is I Married a Princess on... Lifetime starring Cat wait Catherine Oxenberg. Maybe the no, I think maybe, oh yeah, she's the daughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. Whoa, no way. That's hilarious. I'm gonna have to watch this. Yeah, I I'll be I'll be right back. There's another show I'm thinking of, but um give me like ten seconds. Oh sure. All right, sorry about that. Are you there? Yep, yeah, I'm still here, no worries. <laughs> okay, so the other thing I was thinking of is um, 
the Nexium Cult documentary that's on HBO. Um, one of the women who was involved in the cult, her aunt was a Serbian princess. Editor's note. The Serbian princess starring in the Lifetime reality series I Married a Princess is the same Serbian princess who was in the Nexium cult. They are not relatives, they are the same person. She was also on the show Dynasty. Oh, no way. <laughs> that That's a whole interesting other, like, thing to get into. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I, I didn't pay a ton of attention to that documentary. Like, my fiancé was watching it, and I, like, tuned into part of it. But, yeah, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But I'll, I've been hearing kind of more and more about Nexium. It's kind of in relation to, I feel like there are some kind of, like, Epstein ties there. As well as the, that thing where um, that, like, car got shot up in Mexico. Uh, where there are, like, Nexium members and, like, I want to say more, like, high-ranking Mormons or something that got uh, gunned down. Yeah, I remember that. Very strange. We've seen the last of good King Richard. Bring out the past. His name is on and on. Okay, yeah, so you have the book about Operation Gladio. What is that called again? Um, I have a PDF of it, but, um, yeah, NATO's Secret Armies. Yeah, that's right. So I I didn't read a ton of that book. I I found a PDF and skimmed maybe like fifteen pages. But um, so uh, yeah, same. It's very dense. Yeah. So I'll spell out. I guess I'll spell out the basics. And um, but I don't want to go super in depth. Like I just I want to point out some of the things about Operation Gladio that interests me the most because it's hard to even really draw a full picture because so much of it's unknown. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so just to give a general overview before we get more into it, like Operation Gladio was the stay behind operation. Um, and they're basically par- paramilitaries organized. Uh, and the theory was that they were organized to anticipate an attack from the Soviet Union. Um, it, they, they'd basically be like guerrilla militaries to uh, anticipate that. And even though I'm sure that was like part of their motive, uh, maybe even a big part of their motive, the actual like application of Operation Gladio it more resembled like arming far-right groups to do terrorist attacks, um, massacres, spree kills, stuff like that. There's a lot of like factional violence in Italy and the far-right factions were being enabled by the CIA. Uh, that's a general overview. Anything you want to add to that? Um, no, that's, that's more or less what I would say also. Um, yeah, I guess just kind of their, what, just seeding militias. Um, I guess you would almost think of it as like uh, like Cointelpro, um, but with a, like a much more violent element as well that is like ostensibly not connected to the state, but uh, kind of like ultimately very much was. But just in terms of um, really being more about suppressing any kind of left-wing movement uh, within the country more so than 
like defending against an external threat. Are you threatening me? Nay, my bunghole will ask the questions. Kind of an interesting part about that is, so like it, it was born out of a program, like the UK had a program during World War II where they would arm uh, resistance groups in France so they could engage in guerrilla warfare against the Nazis. And then after World War II ended, they basically took the infrastructure of that program and began um, arming and enabling resistance groups or like far right groups who could ostensibly become those same types of resistance groups in case communists ever came in power. Right. They took like the the concept of resistance against the Nazis and then replace all the people with Nazis. Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? One incident that's kind of involved, but not the... Uh, it's not exactly part of Operation Gladio, because that typically only refers to the, like, su supplying of arms and enabling, like, military groups. But something going on at the same time was uh, after World War II... You know, Mussolini was mostly entirely despised by the country. Like, he was really disliked. And communists were seen as one of the main resistance forces. Uh, not just domestically, like, in Italy, that's how they were seen. But also kind of internationally, like, with the Soviet Union. And um, so in the 1948 Italian election, the communists were very close to legitimately winning an election. Uh, but there was heavy CIA interference, so it's impossible to say they would win without the CIA, but, uh, I mean, they were very close, and they did kind of have more popular sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. And that made the U.S. even more edgy about the Soviet Union, so... Um, the for the election, the CIA was funneling money to Christian democracy, the major party opposing the communists, and, uh... The U.S. government gave the candidate, like, a bunch of money to invest in Italy to increase general opinion. So it's impossible to say that the communists would have won without CIA intervention, and the KGB was very likely interfering too. But um, I think that captures the, the goal of Operation Gladio really well. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like an overcorrection, over like overestimation of like the, the the effort being put in by the Soviet bloc. Yeah, like it's really hard to say how much the Soviets really were involved in any of this because even to this day, that is still the excuse that the CIA uses. Yeah, totally. For basically everything. Yeah. And yeah, it's just like the the more that comes out, you kind of hear like, oh, a lot of this brutality that um, for years was like, well, you know, the strategy of tension was, uh, you know, the communists were doing stuff and then uh, the government would do stuff. But it seems like less and less was kind of directly attributable, attributed. Respon the responsibility of uh, leftist groups. I guess one of the most remarkable elements of the Operation Gladio was what's called the Years of Lead, I believe. Decades of Lead, Years of Lead. It's like 20-year period in Italy where there was a lot of paramilitary fighting. 
um, between far like neo-Nazi groups and communist groups, and um, Italy is one of only three countries that ever really investigated into Operation Gladio. The other two are Switzerland and Belgium. And what Italy learned is that the neo-Nazi groups engaging in the kind of assassinations, mass killings, guerrilla warfare, the, those groups were for sure getting funding from the CIA or support in some way. And um, that is by far the most tangible evidence we even have of Operation Gladio. Like... Uh, a lot of it is way more speculative, but that's probably the most concrete evidence. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, to even have that much is like pretty damning. So you you have to wonder what countries that are like way more um, uptight about like declassifying information, uh, what they might have. And if we'll ever actually find out. Because it's like, it sucks that since it is so, uh, there's so much kind of room for speculation, I feel like that almost, it's almost intentional and like kind of a limited hangout in a way because um, it allows the space to kind of fill up with, uh, I mean, with like Alex Jones types, I guess. Uh, we'll just, anytime anything happens, it's, uh, you know, folks, it's Gladio 2.0. And, uh, <laughs> yes. They're very, very well may be things like that going on, and we just won't find out for like 30 years or whatever. Yeah, like I actually have one from the Netherlands that's pretty interesting. So the Netherlands is not a country that really has much evidence of uh, Operation Gladio type projects going on there, at least that we know of. But uh, I was reading that in 1980 and 1983, two separate occasions, people in the Netherlands were like walking in the woods or whatever and stumbled upon just like giant weapons caches with like grenades, rocket launchers, and in 1990, I believe, that's when Italy first published their report about CIA involvement. And around that time is when a lot of European politicians kind of sheepishly had to come forward and be like, oh, yeah, NATO did do this or that. And so at that time, the Dutch government confirmed that those weapon caches were NATO arms in case of guerrilla warfare. So I guess that and there's a lot of stories like that in a lot of countries so that goes to show that it's like people focus on the italian aspect a lot but that's only because that's what we know about but it really was very pervasive and yeah because i mean gladio the name specifically i think refers to just the italian um franchise of it right which um yeah I, I, traditionally like, learned this from looking it up that gladio uh or means sword which I then put together, oh, gladiator, sword guy, okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Doing some Latin etymology. Um, but yeah, I do we even know the names of what uh, some of the other countries, like what their versions of it were called? Because I think gladio, I mean, broadly is used to just refer to, you know, the entire concept, but on like technically is just the Italian version, I guess. Yeah, I think a big part of it is... Um, a lot of these operations in other countries, we don't even really have enough information to know a potential name about them. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure the CIA knows them. They're just not really, like, publicized much, and everyone knows Gladio, so people still sure. say that. Yeah, it's just been, like, suppressed much better in a lot of other countries. Yeah, definitely. Um, and another interesting th- one last... Well, there's a few things I could say more about it, is... Um, one of the countries that was targeted the most was Turkey, and but we still, like, know very little about it. And um, part of the reason is that, like, there's, like, people say that it, Turkey's the only country where um, Operation Gladio wasn't just, like, purged or removed at some point. And that really ties into the idea of the, like, Turkish deep state. Oh, interesting. I guess the way I understand it is Turkey has a history of, you know, their their state policies are very much secular. There's a lot of people who are very secular, very um, kind of like edgelord atheists in <laughs> Turkey. Um, and... Um, they and they have a kind of disrepresented amount of power and so that's why there's been several coups in turkish history they're basically the deep state the secular more powerful state behind the scenes um kind of getting rid of any sort of islamist infiltration into the turkish state the the time they've been least successful is erdogan because he has been able to retain his power but um do you have any thoughts on this idea that like Operation Gladio never went away in Turkey? It, it just kind of like it became part of its deep state structure. These would be gods of the new world order. I, I mean, yeah, it's like it's compelling for sure because um, I mean, you almost wonder how what other countries that may have happened in too. Um, but I mean, the way that Turkey has been kind of. Uh, it's effectively an like a Western ally, right? And especially in kind of the the earlier days of the war on terror, I feel like it was kind of held up as this example of like, well, this is like what a good kind of secular, almost liberal democracy looks like. Um, and we've just never really put that much scrutiny on it um, because for it's potentially just like a, a Western intelligence puppet yeah because if if turkey like turkey is part of nato because the u.s didn't want turkey to become allied with uh the soviet union like because the soviet union was trying to woo turkey at that point too and and i think now at this point in history turkey mostly just creates problems for nato yeah absolutely (laughs) <laughs> Which isn't a bad thing in my opinion. Well, some of it is a bad thing, but creating problems for NATO isn't. Right. Yeah, and that's that's like the complexity of it, where like NATO as a an overall maybe not a net good, but the way that problems are caused for NATO is sometimes like a. I mean, the fallout made ultimately still kind of uh, end up on like just innocent kind of random people. But as an institution, I mean, it's absolutely worth challenging. So that's why it's frustrating when, like, Trump was, like, the only person um, in, like, U.S. politics opposing NATO that vocally. Um, <laughs> yes. So then and as, like, a leftist opposing NATO, you're like, well, no, but also sort of yes. 
to tie that back into the Libyan civil war, it's kind of how I was talking about how Turkey was helping the, the western half of the country. It's like, the, the western half actually had the UN-recognized government, and so ostensibly Turkey was doing more for NATO than anyone else, but then at the same time, like, the U.S. and and France were kind of sheepishly kind of supporting the the uh, Egyptian-backed uh, military dictator. So it's like, you know, we we could say I can say that Turkey creates problems for NATO, but that is an instance where Turkey was actually probably doing what is in NATO's best interests. That that is so crazy. Uh, I think we're getting close to a good time to wrap up. Do you have any more thoughts um, about Operation Gladio before we go? Um, is it not really, other than you know, whenever whenever something happens, um, I guess most recently I'm thinking of the where was it the Nashville bombing, uh, the Christmas Day one. Oh yeah, yeah. I just remember even as recently as that, people saying like, is this is this the continuation? Is this kind of the the Western Gladio 2.0? I read the one of the hosts of the Subliminal Jihad podcast that just posted a picture of a uh, like Glad cookware and the the Moon IO. I thought that was like a funny way to like without words reference it. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, you know, one wonders. Yeah, that was always that was a pretty strange event. I agree. Yeah, it was a weird one, right? Like, and it just we've kind of stopped talking about it. That that audio still like, gives me chills for some reason. <laughs> of just like the the robot voice counting down, and with the uh, that downtown song. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I thought of one last thing I wanted to say about Operation Gladio before we go. So, um, there one one of the stories I heard is really interesting because I said Belgium looked into it, similar to Italy. And one thing they learned is that the Communist Party of Belgium there was a successful divide within it, where basically far right operatives came in and split some of the group off into this, like, basically fake party, this, like, phony, esoteric party that was called Nazi Maoist. They (laughs) were essentially, like, Nazbols or National Bolsheviks before that was a thing. And it was likely orchestrated by the CIA to... They basically used these far-right people to um, split off... Um, communists into this basically made up really weird party. Interesting. So this was um, yeah, it was like almost the origin of the 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 red fash. <laughs> yes. Brown, brown and reds. So they're what they call themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. But um, yeah, where can people find you online? Oh boy. Um. I have a relatively light web presence, but I'm on Twitter at Papu, um, Instagram as well. I think that's my name on Twitch. Um, I don't really Twitch stream much, but um, I'm playing this game Pathologic 2, and I wanted to start streaming that a little bit. Um, So you can watch me um, starve repeatedly 
in a developing Russian town in like the late 1800s. Um, I'll post about that on twitter.com slash patthew. Awesome. And for the listeners, you can follow the podcast at society underscore show. You can also follow me personally at Christian is cool. Uh, is is spelled I-Z, Christian I-Z, cool. You can write an email to the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave a voicemail for the Society Show hotline, 971-238-4138. Pat, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely, Christian. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. Have a great podcast, my friend. We all love the Society Show. Goodbye from me, Kato Kalin.